Canada and Alaska, it is stuffed with organic life forms, some of which can survive very long times. A number of scientists have called for closer monitoring before a surprise virus or bacteria joins the modern age for the first time. What are we supposed to do with all this worrying information? Aside from obvious retreat from fossil power and destruction of nature generally, we can change minds. I know too many people don't want to hear the bad news from the climate front. They're shut down. They also don't want a heat wave lasting months, coasts washed away, and wildfires roaring down the hills. I forgot the flash flooding, the years-long droughts for others, and a thousand other losses from insects to beasts that we love. Don't argue. Teach. Pass this on. The more clearly we can focus our attention on the wonders and realities of the universe about us, the less taste we shall have for destruction. FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programmings of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available on our website kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing, unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Governance and Policy Committee meets quarterly on the third Tuesday of March, June, September, and December at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify that a meeting is being held. KBOO Community Radio is listener-sponsored. That's right. 80% of our funding comes from donations from listeners just like you. You can always make a donation to help keep KBOO independent and non-commercial at kboo.fm give. Right now, during our end-of-year drive, is the perfect time to contribute. Give now and help us reach our goal of $70,000 by December 31st. Make your tax-deductible year-end donation at kboo.fm give today. Welcome to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 97FM. I'm your host this week, Avi Marr. Before I welcome today's guest, novelist John Vircher on Between the Covers, here at KBU Portland, we're revving up on our end of year pledge drive. This is listener supported community radio and our mission for all these years has been to represent our community, especially voices you don't often hear on commercial media. Here at Between the Covers, that's part of my goal to offer in-depth interviews about writing and stories from voices that need to be heard, which is what makes us one of the most diverse radio stations in the country for music, public affairs, news, talk, radio theater, all programmed by a wide variety of folks in our community. So now is the perfect time, if you have the means, to show your support for KBOO, for community radio, and for independent media by becoming a member or renewing your membership. We rely on support from listeners like you. Just go to kboo.fm and click on the big donate button or send us a little love in the mail. Our address is 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Anything helps. Thank you so much for your support of Between the Covers and all our shows here at KBOO Portland 97FM. We're happy you're here and thank you for helping us keep the lights on. If you need the website info again, just go to kboo.fm and click on the big donate button. Or for snail mail, 
20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Novelist and essayist John Bircher is the author of two novels, Three Fifths and After the Lights Go Out. He has written for Cognoscenti at WBUR in Boston. His essays on race, identity, and parenting have been featured on NPR. His nonfiction work has also appeared in Entropy, Crime Reads, Booklist, and Lit Hub. His debut novel, Three Fifths, was named one of 2019's best books by the Chicago Tribune and in England by the Sunday Times, the Financial Times, and the Guardian. His latest novel, After the Lights Go Out, has been called simply brilliant by Publishers Weekly in a starred review and shrewd and explosive by the New York Times. He is currently visiting faculty at Randolph College's Low Residency MFA program and teaches at Chatham University's Low Residency MFA in Pittsburgh. Welcome to Between the Covers, John Bircher. Thank you for having me. I love how you've spoken about the impetus for writing books is to ask questions that you've been wrestling with and that our culture oftentimes hasn't moved forward at all on. Can you introduce the questions you were sitting with when you wrote this book? Yeah, specifically as relates to the MMA aspect of the book, the mixed martial arts aspect of the book, I, having been a physical therapist and having worked with concussion, post-concussion athletes, having worked with patients who suffering with dementia, I, I had this question for myself and I think it's a, I think it's a question become louder as I've gotten older about why I love the sports that I love in particular mixed martial arts. So it's, you know, I've, I've trained in it. I still train in an aspect of mixed martial arts jujitsu. I, I I love the fights. I love the big. I love the all the the grandeur and the and the competition and the skills set involved. But but I also know what happens on the other side. I, you know, I've seen it in in patients. I've seen it in people I've trained with. It, you know, there's there's a there's an ugly side to the sport, and it's not just MMA. It's it's all the contact sports. It's football. It's hockey. It's I mean, to some extent, soccer. I mean, concussions are. Uh, just a huge part of the game and I there's this question about like why are we so attracted to violent sports and even even fake violence right in movies and professional wrestling and and things like that where it's it's scripted or or people are simulating violence it's still something that draws us and draws me and I you know there's there's a part of me that's like why am I okay with that why are we okay with that and I, I still don't have an answer, you know, like I still watch the fights. I still, still enjoy them, but, but there is that lingering question. And so I wanted to explore that in novel form. And that's what I ended up with. So we meet Xavier and he's already seriously impaired at the start of the story. It makes for this kind of exciting claustrophobic kind of doomed beginning. How did you choose for us to meet Xavier already at this level of damage versus a kind of a before picture? So sort of a two-pronged answer to that. It was originally, I started writing this book as a crime novel because my first novel had had a lot of success being classified in that way. And so I sort of had this internal pressure on myself that was like, ah, I guess I'm a crime novelist now. Like I didn't, I wasn't sure. And so I, I, I wrote it kind of with this sort of strong crime hook and, you know, that I got like 20,000 words into it and hated it just completely just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tossed almost all of it, um, probably down to like, maybe just the first 200 words and uh, gave gave it the opening that it has now. I guess I don't want to give away spoilers in case anybody hasn't read it. The other part of that is just, I, I love the, the literary technique of in media race when things, when you're dropped right in the middle. Um, not that I don't like a good origin story being a comic book fan, but there's also just something about, I, I like that active discovery when when you're dropped in the middle and you sort of have to figure out what's going on as opposed to just being having it all explained to you right up front. Well, it also the the pace of it also matches the kind of 
like fast electric fight style that you're even talking about. So it has this mm -hmm. great parallel that grabs you right out of right from the from the gate. I loved it. It's Thank you. Yeah. So speaking about MMA fighting, um, it's it's wildly popular. And one of the things I thought about in reading your book was that it is such an intimate act in a way to watch you know, body contact body contact it's not like far away like with football where it's anonymous people in helmets you know seen from a faraway view it makes the reader almost complicit to read this level of detail about the spectacle of that so i wanted to talk to you about one of the things i'm amazed at is how beautifully you write about violence because it's often written about in a kind of sensationalized way you write about it it's almost like a ballet while someone's trying to kill someone <laughs> i just wanted to ask you about how is it for you writing about writing um about violence in in this intimate kind of way i think part of that i don't think i would have been able to have done that had i not participated in the sport to some extent um and, and I wouldn't have written this book had I not participated in it to some extent. I, I felt, I, I, you know, I, I tend to write what I want to read and what I like to read are stories that feel lived in where it just feels so authentic that you're like, there's no way this couldn't have happened to the author, even if it's complete fiction. I'm not that good of, I'm not that imaginative. So I have to take life experience and throw it in there. Um, but I, I have a great deal of respect for the sport violence aside if you know like i kind of compartmentalize it a little bit but it's it involves such a high level of skill and such a level of strategy and you know there there's there's the cliche about the jujitsu which is the ground part of the of the mma fighting game that it's human chess and it, and it really is there's a lot of strategy there's a lot of thinking a few moves ahead and so it's I, I I wanted to in some way express that admiration for the sport while not shying away from the fact that it still involves head trauma and limbs breaking and all of that kind of stuff. Because while I wanted while I wanted to celebrate it, I also wanted to be realistic about it and and not make it this overly beautiful thing like I didn't want to be too balletic with it and I didn't want to be too poetic with it because there is a cost for all of this stuff so I'm not sure if that answers the question but that's kind of <laughs> that's, that's sort of what I'm well you said that you did some MMA fighting did anything surprise you about what went on in your mind when you were in a fight like that that you wanted to capture onto the page I don't think anything surprised me other than <laughs> I, so I I did one, I've only done one MMA fight as an amateur, and I had six kickboxing fights up, you know, before that to, to sort of gain experience, all amateur level, different rule set, that kind of thing. I was, I was, I always say I was a tourist, you know, like I wasn't, <laughs> I had no professional aspirations. I was just um, doing it sort of to test myself and achieve goals that were important to me, but the thing that surprised me most then was that I didn't get less scared the more I competed. I got more scared. <laughs> like each each time was was uh, just as terrifying an event, if not more so. <laughs> you know, every every time before I stepped in there, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, what is this? This is so dumb. I'm terrified. And then the minute it was over, I was like, man, I can't wait to do that again. And so that that all of that was very surprising. You know the the fact that it that the fear never went away, and that it was immediately gone after it was over, and was ready to start that cycle all over again. So That's really interesting to hear because one of my questions, uh, other questions was was about another fantastic thing about the novel, which was a surprise to me because it's it's a world I haven't experienced, was the difference between this kind of tough guy posturing, and these are like the, some of the toughest dudes in the world. And and straight up, most of the emotional range around being in those fights was for Xavier was complete terror, was completely yeah. making himself 
keep moving forward while he was terrified. And I'm not sure why that surprised me in some way, but you capture that in internal experience so well in this book. How do you how do you view that kind of because in a way I thought there was something about masculinity in that altogether about mm -hmm. about is there something you're, that's in your discussion about this is what it actually feels like? Yeah, I, I think it. I mean, you, I think you really hit it on the head that that this was also sort of an exploration of masculinity and maybe trying to poke holes in sort of the toxicity of it, in the sense that bravery is is often attributed to fearlessness, and what real bravery is is acting in the face of fear. You know, it's it's not it's not that you're not afraid; it's that you go forward anyway. And I don't think that's talked about enough among men. You know, it's, it's it's there's always this front that we have to put on that we're not scared. I, to me, it's what how how is it courageous if you're not afraid? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how, what why why is your action impressive by any means if you're not terrified? You know, it's that's not to say that the it doesn't take away from the skill set of the people that get in there that that aren't scared. But I, to me, I I'm I'm far more impressed when you you know you're in the back throwing up before you go out onto this stage and do one of the hard things imaginable you know it's it's a it's a quality my wife and i teach our boys you know like when they're when they're afraid of something you know we say that you know don't being afraid is not wrong but letting your fear stop you from doing something that you might enjoy is and that's that's something um again as you said it was something about masculinity that i wanted to explore just portray it in a way we don't often see it it's a great point that you're making about your own sons because that's one of the questions that it gives me is so when you think these things through how do you feel about your sons being interested in sports like this like how do you manage that I'm not saying that I know that they are interested in it, but I'm saying I wondered about that about you. You know, how do you yeah. know that as a dad? I, I don't know. I'm kind of dreading it. It's not that we're not there yet. Um, a little. Yeah, fortunately, they're so they're they're ten and seven. Uh, they like basketball right now, which is great. They're not so much into the jujitsu. They they've seen it, but you know they're kind of they're they're more into their video games right now, which I'm like. That's okay. I'm all right with that. That and basketball, that's good. There's there's really very few head injuries there. But I, you know, but I also still work on the heavy bag at home and I and I still train, so I I know that eventually there may be an interest there. And I'll have to be asking that question of myself when that time comes. I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm practicing in avoidance right now. Okay. Well, I I will respect that. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll shift this a little bit. And just a reminder about our end of the year pledge drive. If you love hearing the voices and perspectives of writers like our wonderful guest, John Bircher, here on Between the Covers and Jonesy and Black Books, if you love all of the other KBU news, music and public affairs programs, we're so happy to bring you. We're, we'd be so grateful to have your help meeting our fundraising goal. If you can, please go to kboo.fm to donate anything within your means and hit the donate button. Thank you for your gift of listener-supported radio for our vibrant Portland community. We've taken some knocks these past few years, like many of you Portlanders have, so thank you for any help you can give. I might be going back to something that we talked about before, but as a physical therapist, you said you lived your research firsthand on the cumulative brain damage in athletes. What did you most want to communicate to readers about that experience of the aftermath of what athletes who take these hits um, like football players and fighters that doesn't really get talked much about i think just the fact that it doesn't get talked much about you know it's it's the the title of the book kind of had some duality maybe even beyond duality you know it's not just about what happens after the lights go out on the, on the stage or what happens when the light on the brain but it's also like you know for us 
after a play is over, after a game is over, we just turn it off. You know, it's, you know, we, we see these wide open field hits in football and we see these guys carried off on stretchers and, you know, you see guys knocked out in the ring that are, that are out for minutes at a time. And it's at some point we just turn it off and go about our daily lives. And, and of course we should, like, how could we function if we're always thinking about those type of things, but it, it, it still raises the question as to why do we enjoy it? And why don't we talk about it? Is it too much to handle? Is it, can we not comprehend our enjoyment of the sport and then reconciling that with the damage it does to the to the people we cheer on i i, I don't know again it that that was sort of the point of this it was it was an exploration for me and i hoped others had the same questions or would be interested in asking the same question but i, yeah. I don't know if it's something we could ever answer i think it is a pretty disturbing kind of psychological question about i mean the word that comes up for me is exploitation about where we watch someone of extraordinary ability and enjoy that. And then we, we say no thank you to the actual cost right in front of you. Like you're saying, mm -hmm. someone's carried off on a stretcher or someone, you've just watched someone's brain get injured when they're right. not. That's what you've watched. Right. And so that sort of, is it compartmentalizing? Is that the right word? I don't know. That to me makes the most sense, right? Because it's, it's almost, it, it is almost too much, right? Like if you, if you think about trying to to continue that narrative in your head like what oh god like they got to go home to their kids they got you know it's it's just like how do you how do you deal with that i i don't know i think it ties into about sort of objectification around sort of when someone is like a sports figure we're we're taking enjoyment from from what they do and mm -hmm. what's our and and the, just to pivot a little bit towards the dementia in the other character in in the book with his dad that there's this sort of denial that xavier has to hold on to to love mm -hmm. his dad until much like if you showed the damage to these athletes later more clearly the father starts to show his hidden racism it comes bursting open to xavier but i think there is something about when knowledge comes in that you can't take back is one of the yeah. amazing themes in the book it happens with with Xavier and Shot too. You know, there was this this whole denial of Shot's involvement in illicit affairs that he knew, but he didn't. He told himself he didn't know. He didn't. He pretended it didn't. It didn't exist. It didn't happen. So it's, you know, there's a there's a lot about denying the things about the people you love in order to keep loving them. Mm -hmm. Well, and the dementia comes together with the devotion for his dad. Mm -hmm. to, um, that he tries to he tries to keep it. He tries not to believe what his dad is doing. Mm -hmm. What were, what was what were you kind of wrestling with when you were thinking out the way that relationship progresses in the book? I always feel I shouldn't say always. I think maybe just in later in life I I've been interested in exploring the nuances of mixed race relationships, being a product of one, being in one. You know, it's um, I, there's this there's this Baldwin quote that I love that I'm gonna mangle because I'm just not good at remembering quotes word for word. But you know, he he may have this quote about um, he loves America dearly and is therefore is reserves the right to criticize her perpetually. And it, I I sort of feel the same way about having been in a you know being the product of a mixed race marriage and being in a mixed race relationship. I I think sometimes from a from a fifty thousand foot view, people look at it as like, well, this this is healing. This is the country coming together. Mixed race relationships are, you know, that's that can save us. It's you know, and it's just like, well, no, it doesn't always work that way. And and there's a lot of reasons why. And and so while my parents had it good, and you know, and I'm in a great one, it's I've seen ones that have not been so great. Again, I, I think because I love it, I'm I'm justified in in taking a critical look at it, and I, and I think the reason I explored it in this sort of nursing home dementia setting is, I think a lot of times we perceive mixed race relationships like in that present moment, and we don't think about what may happen later down the road when sometimes 
changes in our brain make us either the person we always were and hid or create changes that make you someone you never were it's so it's i just think that i just think that adds a complication to aging and and uh relationships and time together i don't know if that makes sense at all it totally it totally makes sense i, I absolutely what i was trying to think about was i love that last thing that you said that was one of my other questions about because you one of the craft choices you make which i adore which every other people have adored is using a, a, a separated out other voice mm -hmm. right for xavier that has its own has its own thoughts that sound almost like a different person mm -hmm. and before i ask the question could i ask you to read a bit from from one of those chapters of sure just so, so we can get a get a flavor Right. You know what I don't get? When people get all up in arms about violence, especially in the cage. Oh, it's so barbaric. Oh, it's human cockfighting. Oh, it's just a blood sport for knuckle draggers and Neanderthals. Please. Why is everyone out here denying their true nature? Because let me tell you, your boy Clay, he called it right. Lawrence deserved everything you gave him. Talking all that yang about how he's blacker than you. You just gave him what he was asking for, and you did that because for once, you stopped denying your true nature. Hell, everybody's got that animal in them. How many times you've been caught in a traffic jam because everybody's slowing down, damn near twisting their heads off to see how bad somebody got messed up in an accident. They ain't looking to make sure everybody is okay. They want to see heads through windshields, somebody dead on the asphalt. They want to see something that better be worth making them late to work. They want to see gore. They want to feel that rush. I'm saying nobody watches football to see some boring ass back and forth tactical game. And if they say that, they're lying to you, to themselves. They want to see wide receivers in the open field, up in the air, backs turn, get flipped upside down and land on their head, turning their spine into a jack-in-the-box. They want to see those nasty hits when dudes' helmets fly off. They watch with bated breath when the game stops because he isn't moving on the field. And you can't tell me they aren't just a little disappointed when he stands up and walks it off. If that applause they give when he can stand on his own isn't the most half-hearted applause you ever heard, then I don't know what is. See, violence is in our nature, homeboy. Violence builds empires. Violence destroys tyranny. Violence is the only way forward, and it's, and it's in our DNA. It's damn sure in yours. But somewhere along the way, we started telling ourselves it wasn't cool, that we couldn't just pick up a club anymore and crush somebody's skull if they were in our way. So we created all these rules, that moved our violence to the ring, the mats, the cage, the field, the ice. And then we created rules, turned it into sport, turned our primal urges into a desire for the most yards, the most points, the most wins in the season, the belt, the trophy. But people cheer loudest at a hockey game when fights break out. People lose their damn minds when a race car flips end over end at 200 miles per hour. People tell themselves they shouldn't get out of the car at the light after someone cut them off in traffic to pull them out of their car by their hair and bash their head off the hood until their teeth scatter because it's just so wrong. But they want to. Oh boy, they all want to visit some violence on that fool. That urge to destroy just claws at them from inside their chest. They're just too soft to do it, to, to answer that call. And it isn't their fault. It's just how it is. It's what we turned all this into. Oof. One of the things I it was just when I read those chapters, I, I was thinking about it, it sounds like a different voice I hear in my yeah, while I'm reading. It sounds so different than Xavier's voice. Mm -hmm. and, and I was wondering what was did did it feel different when you were writing Xavier versus it's actually it's a part of him, but it sounds like a different character. Did it feel different when you're writing it? Yeah, I it was <laughs> strangely it was less confining you know uh i could just put my foot on the pedal and kind of um just go unfettered with it and that was sort of the idea that this this voice was his deteriorating frontal lobe right it's it's the it's the filter falling away it's or you know it's it's what the filter was holding back so in some ways that was fun but in other ways it was like it it, it, it did kind of go to some dark places where you're thinking like Okay, like, do 
do I think this? Do we think this? Like, I, yeah. So it was, it was, it was fun, but it was also a little, you know, I don't want to be so melodramatic as to say unnerving, but it was, it was kind of like, oh, okay, I don't wonder. We'll see how that's going to be received. I don't, I don't know if that's going to go over so well, but uh, I guess isn't it, that squishy, unnerving? It was upsetting to you. Usually, this time you, you've written something. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, maybe it's discomfort. Go Thank you. Thank, it served yeah. us, the reader. Yeah. But that was that was the question that I got kind of hooked on was you brought this up a little earlier is and this kept going whenever I read those sections in the book I was like is it a deterioration because one of the things I've heard you say in interviews is it was sort of an unmasking of a more like primal uh, voice but the other question I had is or does all the damage produce a different a different self that's what i was wondering about where where your head is that's at question. yeah i it, it's i it, an unanswerable question right i mean i'm sure neurologists are still working to to figure that out i, I mean i would think i mean they talk about I, I read something not long ago where there was and i don't you know don't quote me on this i don't know if this was a, a good scientific journal or not but i read something somewhere where they said that the faces that you see in dreams, even if you haven't, even if you don't recognize them, you saw them at some point. It could have even been somebody you crossed on the street. I love that idea. Even it if it's just, not true, I love it. It was just registered, it's, you know, just registered in your subconscious. You saw that face at some point in your life, even if it was for a, a you know, a brief second. So there's, you know, I, that made me wonder about like, okay, are these, are there these latent things that that someone isn't even aware of you know is is sam that blissfully unaware of the fact that he is as as virulently racist as he is was he in denial was he consciously in denial does he you know it's it's all those are all fascinating questions to me to which again i have no answer but are you know just ripe for exploring fiction or nonfiction. Well, and I love I love you bringing it in a in a micro, you know, with the dad's dementia, with the vehicle with which you bring the open question, which which I think is part of what. These are not the conversations we we don't have these conversations, and we should be having them about, like we're a racist country, which means we all were raised, you know, the racism's in here. It's what you do with it, or people kind of presume this I don't have that in me thing and so I love you're sort of depicting it in the dad's you know nursing home room of you don't give us an answer but you you open the question in a way that I, it's one of the things I love about the book is I just kept saying to myself these are the conversations we should be having that we're not having mm -hmm. that I can't tell you how many white men and women came up to me and said, this is what happened to my father in their single. Really? That they were like, they, they said, I, they, they never heard him utter a racist word around the house, you know, to their knowledge. And said that when it came to working with black nurses, black nurses, aides, whatever, just the, just most hateful, vile stuff came out. And they said they were so embarrassed and they didn't know what to say and they didn't know what to do. And, yeah, I had a lot of people come up and say, I don't know how you captured that, but that was, and I said, again, experience, you know, my wife still works in the skilled nursing setting and horror stories all the time, but, you know, and, and 80, 80 plus percent of the, the women that work in the skilled nursing setting are black women and they're subject to this stuff all the time. And, and to your, to your point, we're not talking about it. Mm -hmm. That that was a question, another one that I had about it, that a lot of the women in the book, uh, the female characters are seen as sort of paying for and absorbing the damage from um, from the men in the book and providing so much unacknowledged and thankless care. Can you talk about what you wanted to bring forward about that? Because it sounds exactly like <laughs> I mean, you you nailed it. That's exactly what I wanted to bring forward was that this this environment of uh, abuse, but reciprocate instead of reciprocating that abuse, turning around and giving thankless and seemingly bottomless love. Of yeah, I, I just I don't 
again, I don't think it's talked about or appreciated, and uh, particularly in the in the healthcare community. I mean that the that those sections of the book were kind of my love letter that that community of caregivers because it's 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 necessary. Mm -hmm. Can we pivot a little bit to another female character in the book? Sure. Mom. <laughs> it's one of the things that was really striking to me about the kind of um, narrative arc of the two of them was how Xavier's devotion to his dad mm. kind of helped his memory stay warped about his mom and seeing her as betraying. Mm -hmm. Thoughts about how, what choices his mom had as you were thinking about her as a character? Yeah, the, the the thing that was important to me was that I don't I didn't want any any character, no matter how how much affection I felt towards them as I was creating them, I didn't want any of them to be perfect, right? You know that that no no one should be without flaw in this, and and to me, her flaw was being pushed away enough to walk out night on him, and not having the ability to step away from that and say that was the wrong move and just watching that rift continue to grow as opposed to he's a kid he doesn't know what he's doing i need to i need to be the mother i need to be and step up and do this that that said i also wanted i didn't want there to be unnecessary drama at their reunion that there needed to be a recognition on her behalf that she was not faultless per se, even though, I mean, why she left wasn't her fault, but how she left was the misjudgment of a young mother. And as an older mother, she's she's realized that mistake, but too much time had passed that she felt Xavier had to come to that realization on his own as well. And so that was that was sort of the reasoning for creating her in the way I did. But it also struck me that it, it it was the kind of exchange Xavier had to make to, he had to keep the knowledge about his father's actions and his words and what drove his mother away out of his, out of his consciousness to stay true to his dad. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Xavier does a lot of compartmentalizing and, and not just about his dad. I mean, he does it about shot and he does it about himself. Yeah, Xavier is not uh, he's he's not without fault in a lot of ways, <laughs> even even though he's the protagonist and, and he's got some bad things happening to him. He's also done his dirt as well. Can we talk about shot a little bit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> favorite. That was one of the relationships I was most obsessed with. <laughs> Just watching my own mind say good guy bad guy exploited taking advantage <laughs> loves him doesn't love him just went back and forth and back and forth and and i was reading through it thinking you know what does john want me to think about about is and i was it was back to masculinity and back to male friendship and back to you know do we take advantage of each other do we love each other do we both and i know mm -hmm. i've heard you in interviews talk about you know you are very careful like what you just said about his mom like there's no there's no idealization here mm -hmm. i'll be a little dirty and human yep so i wanted to ask you about that particular because because that's the main friendship mm -hmm. that's shown and it seems <laughs> tricky <laughs> tricky is the best word for it yeah i mean i'm i'm it's really encouraging and and validating to hear that you you were having those uh concerns about him because he's he's supposed to be concerning in that way i mean i i think the one thing i always want people to come away with is shot loves his cousin there's there's no two ways about it like he loves xavier but as to your point does he love him and does he also exploit him yeah i you know the i think one of the things that i like to explore in in any characters and and why i like writing flawed characters that are as you said dirty and human is because i think we have this tendency as people to make everything binary right it's got to be you know not only just as it are you a man or are you a woman but it's also can i love somebody and, and exploit them at the same time can i can i be his 
his manager and looking out for his best interests, but also looking out for mine. You know, like I, th- those things coexist in people all the time, but yet we have this, we got to classify it, right? Like, well, Shot can't be doing that. If he, he can't be exploiting him, if he loves him, no, yeah, he can. You know, can a, can a racist father be loving of his, of his mixed race son? It happens in the, you know, at least in this fictional world that I've created, and I'm pretty sure it probably happens in the real world too. So it's, yeah, that that's why characters like Shot are, are are fun to write. Actually, I I actually think the messier the better, <laughs> because it feels more natural. I think when you're when you're friends that long, you tend to become more and more honest, and that's that was the fun part of writing Shot is Shot's kind of a truth teller, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily about himself, but he'll tell you the truth about yourself whether you want to hear it or not. Sometimes I feel like we need people like that in our lives, <laughs> you know, not maybe not always, but uh, not not ones like Shot who will also, you know, take advantage of certain things. But the he somebody had to call out Xavier on his lies or or his uh, his compartmentalization, whatever you want to call it. I want to say, his, but I know we're on radio, so that. But that's what Shot was there to do, and. I think that kind of honesty usually only comes with a, a lifetime of friendship, like you said. Did you know how you wanted the book to end? On what note? Because I was thinking about shot and where things go, and we're not going to do any spoilers. <laughs> but did you know from the beginning? Yeah. I tend to, although my process is a little different on the book I'm writing now, the I, I usually... That what what is the same about what I'm doing now and was true of the the first two books is I I always write with a beginning and end in mind I ha, I I got to know where I'm going yeah I I'm the the middle can be a little fuzzy but the, I I got to know where it ends and to me considering the subject matter and knowing what I know about the the science of this and and what the end result has been for people who have suffered with this I, to me it didn't it couldn't end any other way like it has to if i'm going to do it justice it it can't be about riding off into the sunset spoiler alert but too late <laughs> uh, um what are you working on now third novel it is uh the title is devil is fine it's about another mixed race protagonist. I'm, I write what I know, right? Who is a uh, has recently lost a child, and has then found out he's inherited land in a northeast beach community that it turns out to have been a plantation, and that there are bodies on this plantation that may or may not be haunting him. Yeah, it's 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 another sort of mental health exploration, but also about realism and religion, and so just delving into you know more lighthearted stuff. Well, and expanding now, you can do ghost stories too. Yeah, you know it's it's uh it, it's it's I'm I'm aiming for that. Is it a ghost story? Is it not a ghost story? Space. I I like I like. The, I like explorations of the mind like that where like is this supernatural or is this like is this guy having an episode like that kind of th- those type of things are always of, of great interest to me so write well, what I want to read again well again I think that's what's so beautiful about how you explored Xavier by sort of breaking it into is this a revealed part of him or is this a, a coming into being part of him that is pushing him towards more damage, faster, stronger. Right. It's not answerable. So I, I appreciate that that you love to occupy that space because I think it's another thing I loved about the book and another way I started to admire you as a writer was that you're opening up talking about mental health with mm-hmm. men, with mm-hmm. men in sports. I wondered if that was part of your momentum in writing is to help bring awareness in a way that destigmatizes and lets us have a conversation about what's actually happening and destroying people anyway by not being talked about. 
100%. I mean, I, I don't, it, again, it's sort of a two-pronged thing for me. I, I really took to heart the advice that, you know, if there's a book you haven't read, you got to write it, right? And so there's just a lot of, while, while I am certain there are books about this topic in fiction, nonfiction, they're, they're, I haven't read them yet. So, but that's not, and I'm not the the world's most voracious. I mean, I read a lot, but I don't, I'm a slow reader, so I don't get around to as much stuff as I'd like. Yeah, in, in this setting, in this format, in this way, I just hadn't read about that. And, and I wanted, to, I like to, I like to talk fairly frankly about things. And so I felt like that world of both healthcare and, and MMA allowed me to talk about mental health in a frank way. Because I, to your point, the, the, the lack of conversation around it is, is almost as damaging as the, as the condition itself. Well, and I think one of the ways that that's shown is throughout the book, he doesn't get any help mm -mm. Nope. in any way. And I understand he, in some ways, didn't seek out a certain kind of medical care because he didn't want to be stopped from fighting, but there's zero, there's zero, any, even psychological conversation he has with anybody except maybe one of the nurses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she sees the issue, but he can't, he's, it's not even a consideration for him. Yeah. I think that's why one of the, my experiences of the novel was the sort of loneliness of being male. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I, it, I, I hesitate to, to talk about it in that sense because it, it feels in, in, you know, in some ways that can sound dismissive. Like, I mean, because it's, let's face it, we're in a, it's a, we're definitely living in a patriarchy. It's a man's kind of thing. But, um, but it, but at the same time, that conversation doesn't allow for sometimes having the conversations about how lonely it can be to be suffering with mental health issues. So it's, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword it's it's not it's not an easy thing to talk about and in a way that doesn't feel like you're dismissing other issues for me I which is more of an explanatory thing that i think lonely people are cause the most damage <laughs> yeah oh for sure that's for what sure. i mean like the, the isolating that's what i meant about sort of terrorized little little terrified little kids being made to look tough, I would imagine, is a recipe for disaster. That's where I was going. Yeah, and I well, and I think then they grow up into terrified adults who still have the same problems. One more reminder that it's pledge drive season. Please consider becoming a member or renewing your membership here at KBOO to keep public radio alive and healthy as we bring you independent voices on programs like Between the Covers, news, public affairs, and music. We rely on our community. We are listener supported. If you don't have the means, that's okay. We're happy to be here for you. If you do have the means, please consider a donation today or tomorrow to KBOO Portland FM. Just go to our website, kboo.fm, and click on donate. Any help is appreciated to keep the lights on. So speaking of terrified adults, I'm hoping that you can read another section that um, that I think, not to over, over explain it in the beginning, but exemplifies what a one particular type of terrified man, how he treats Xavier. That was a great segue. Do you want to set up any context here or just dive in? You can do a little little sentence of the intro of what scene we're reading. So Xavier has just had sort of a rage incident in his father's kitchen. The, the home, his father's home is something he's trying to uh, get ready to sell since his father's in the nursing home. So he's been living there. Uh, and he's got a neighbor who is not a fan of a black man in his neighborhood. 
particularly next door. And so after this this incident, this rage incident was all the excuse his neighbor needed to call the police. And so now Xavier is dealing with them in his driveway. So we're talking, the first person speaking here is a police officer, his last name is Wilson. Why don't you settle down, son, and show me that identification, Wilson said. Son, Xavier turned back and saw Wilson gesture with one hand while the other stayed by the gun side of his belt. Xavier put his hands in his pockets and Wilson's hand moved to hover over his gun. He knew he should be afraid, but all he felt was anger and he couldn't change the channel. Like I said, I don't have my wallet on me. It's inside. Well, why don't the three of us step inside and you can show me? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Sir, are you refusing us entry into the home? First his son, and now it's sir? Xavier took his hands out of his pockets and Wilson's gun hand twitched. Xavier slowed his movement, then held his hands up and wiggled his fingers before crossing his arms over his stomach. That's exactly what I'm doing. You're here pressing me for ID, assuming I don't live here. And you asked me my name. Okay, so what is your name? The younger partner asked from behind Wilson. Xavier Wallace, this is my father's. <laughs> I knew it, the second officer said, whipping off his shades. I knew I knew that face. Wilson, you know who this is? Wilson kept his stance and eyed Xavier, unmoved by his partner's sudden enthusiasm. Who? The young officer clapped his hands. And this is the Scarecrow. Who? Xavier Scarecrow Wallace. He's a pro MMA fighter. Never heard of him. What? Man, he fights in the show. Is that right? That's the big time, isn't it? You a big timer, Xavier? Not lately, no. Yeah, I mean, he's not a household name or anything, the younger partner said. Xavier jerked his chin back. The officer saw Xavier's body language and turned sheepish. Uh, no disrespect intended, Mr. Wallace. Wilson here's a casual. I'm more of a hardcore fan. That suspension should be up soon, right? Xavier and Wilson continued their stare down. Today, actually. No kidding. Nice. You getting back in there? This Saturday, yeah. That might be up to Officer Wilson here, though. Ah, oh, forget about all that. Chill out, Wilson. He's cool. Wilson did not relax. With the residue of rage still clouding his judgment, Xavier had forgotten himself. He'd forgotten that his lighter skin only got him so far where the police were concerned. Maybe they'd looked at him twice when he He'd been put over, sure, but they'd never seemed to approach him with the same bravado he'd seen them display when Shot was in the driver's seat. Instead of that kind of aggressive posturing, they showed Xavier a cautious disdain. It was a privilege he was well aware of, but now he'd taken it too far. I, I love I love the tension in the scene, and that, to me it really speaks to what we're talking about, this opposition where this one guy's worshiping him, right? The, the worshiped athlete and the, and the other guys, to me, the cop is scared. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. And Xavier is rightly offended, but he's trying to hold himself back at the same time. And I thought it was a really interesting scene I wanted to ask you about because you write the piece about the, the lightness of his skin had granted him a different reaction in from the police. I just wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, while it's certainly addressed, I don't think it's addressed a lot about how, you know, being mixed race when you're, when you're lighter skinned, you, there is a privilege to that. There is, there is this adjacency to, to whiteness, I think, that keeps you safer than if you are a dark skinned black man or woman. I just, it's just how it is. I mean, when you, when you look at, statistically who's who's pulled over who's shot when unarmed i mean all of those things like it's uh and, and i wanted i thought it was the, a, a way to convey that with, without being didactic and sort of wagging a finger was to have xavier experience that firsthand but but also experience that that privilege only goes so far <laughs> you know like you can you can only take it so far before you know that could become problematic for you anyway but that was also meant to to sort of shine a light on celebrity and how that changes things and how money changes things and how class and status change all of that stuff you know try to roll that into sort of one scene which i, I hope i did effectively but yeah 
Well, one of the things I heard you say in a, in another interview was that before you started shaving your head, that you have kind of wavy hair and that you've noticed since you started shaving your head that you get treated differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, treated differently in the sense that where I used to get that question, you know, what are you anyway? Or, you know, are you, oh. are you Hispanic? Are you this? Like, there's, there's no question anymore. It, it's 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 always assumed that I'm either either black or or with both parents or mixed race or light skinned or you know it's it runs the gamut. But I don't I don't get those questions anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So how do you? I guess my question is: it's is it such a particular angle from which to look at the way the culture treats different men? Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about how how Xavier is a really good example of someone traveling through those sort of mid middle spaces and feelings of belonging, like where feelings of where he belongs. It seems like was part of his search through the book. Part of my search through life. <laughs> That's uh, it's yeah. I mean, if, if there's any piece of auto fiction in there, that would be, that, that would be, that. I mean, it's, it's uh, I explored that in my first book. I'm still exploring it in this next book. It's, it's the, it's probably the eternal question for which there probably is no answer, you know, and it, and it it goes back to that tendency that I spoke of before about people wanting things to be binary or you have to fit in a certain category. You know, it's it's just, it's not that simple. And, you know, I think it's another one of those things where I think the older I get, the more I think about it, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult now. I've got it all figured out. It's like not even close. You mean you think about the implications of how it's affecting your life in deeper and deeper ways, or? Yeah, well, and I, I just, I, I think, you know, I've talked about this before. When when you get asked that question so often, that "what are you" question, mm-hmm. and and it's so early in life, right? Like, I mean, I was hearing that question when I was like seven years old. You know, you do, you, like, you can only hear that so many times before you're like, oh, what am I? You know what I mean? Like, because because when you're a kid, you feel like. You're just like, yeah, I'm just a kid. But as you get older, you realize that the the world's not going to let you think of yourself that way. You know what I mean? Like it's, it just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. As, as much as you can tell yourself, well, I am me and this is who I am. Like it, it would be great if our internal perceptions were the only things that mattered, but it's unfortunately, that's just not the world we live in. So, you know, are you an optimist or are you a realist? It's, I guess that's, so so yeah, I, that's a long way of me saying that I that I still explore the questions. I guess not so much, not so much because I'm looking for an answer because I don't think I'll ever know what that answer is. It's more of just, it, I guess maybe I'm just still looking for guideposts as to, as to how to navigate the world. You know, as as a person, as as someone who is of both parents who is who is or or of, of a black and white parentage of of what it means to fit in one space and what it means to fit in the other or can i fit in both spaces just being me you know like that it's that that stuff doesn't go away when you're a kid it's it's still there but it also makes for a beautiful exploration of a of a character that can't quite settle in mm-hmm. the way that the way that it feels when you write Xavier is that is that it keeps him looking and asking the question, which ends up being just just deepening the humanity of the book. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for a lovely conversation. Yeah, this was great. That's our show for today. I'm your host, Avi Mar. Thanks for listening to Between the Covers. Just one last reminder about our pledge drive. We're community radio, not another tentacle of corporate interests. We rely on our listeners to support programs like Between the Covers, as well as KBOO's news, music, and public affairs. We've been here in Portland for over 50 years, and we'd like to stay open and healthy for another 100. If you can, please consider a donation. Just go to kboo.fm and click on Donate. We're committed to bringing you the voices that need to be heard, and we're working hard to keep that possible. Thank you for any help you can give if you are able. You can mail us to at KBU, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland 97214. Thank you for all you give and thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening to this week's Between the Covers with me, your host, Avi Marr, with musical help from John Bechtel. listener-supported community radio. Stay tuned for Shocks of Sheba, up next after these headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. 